comes to mind when you think about artificial intelligence? Is it a doomsday scenario of robot overlords? The ever-increasing number of AI chatbots like ChatGPT? What about a program that can make art almost indistinguishable from your favorite musicians or painters? Maybe something that seems to be a real person speaking, moving, and responding, but is actually completely composed of code. AI is ever more a part of our lives, especially online, and it raises a whole tangle of questions about what it means to be an artist, a worker, and maybe even a moral human being. Fortunately, there are some sharp minds here in Massachusetts mulling those very questions. I'm Jennifer Smith of Commonwealth Magazine, and this week we're exploring artificial intelligence with Dr. Nir Esakovich. He's a philosophy professor at UMass Boston and founded the university's Applied Ethics Center. Professor Esakovich, thanks so much for joining me today to talk through this very mind-bending topic. Thank you for inviting me and thank you for having me. Let's start off with a pretty foundational question. How do you define artificial intelligence, and what's the biggest misconception in identifying whether or not something is AI? Yeah, that is a good that is a good uh, starting place. Uh, so, artificial intelligence. First of all, the definition itself is in uh, a bit of flux, but uh, at least until recently, the applications that uh, we're primarily familiar with. Uh, our so-called machine uh, learning uh, applications, where um, software um, is uh, fed a great deal uh, of data, learns to recognize patterns in that data, and then uh, produces predictions um, on the uh, basis of the uh, data it has uh, learned. Uh, more recently, uh, the uh, introduction of generative models of uh, uh, large language models like ChatGPT and similar ones uh, have uh, used the variation on that to um, sort of vector uh, the neighborhood of words and to uh, uh, continually predict what the next word uh, in a sentence uh, that would be and then to perform the same prediction over and over again. And that's resulted in the pretty remarkable um, uh, output that we've had from ChatGPT and uh, similar ones. Uh, misconception, um, probably one important misconception is that we're moving closer and closer to a sentient kind of uh, a Skynet uh, AI that's capable of uh, uh, generating uh, its own intentions uh, and um, <clears throat> finally becoming a robot overlord. I think that's not uh, in the cards uh, for the near future. So you've written so many interesting pieces about AI and its ethical implications just this year. So why were you drawn to the topic? What's UMass Boston's involvement in the ethical implications of AI? Uh, right. So um, I run the Applied Ethics Center here at UMass Boston. And pretty much from the beginning of the center in 2017, we've had a, a project on uh, the ethics of emerging technologies and specifically AI, since in some way it's the uh, most prominent emerging uh, uh, technology. And I think what's uh, so interesting uh, uh, for me and my colleagues about it is not only in some of the traditional moral worries that it raises around privacy or around uh, the kind of scaling of bias, but also how it changes the people who uh, who use it, how it sort of psychologically alters us. Does it psychologically alter us in a way that's qualitatively different from what other technologies in the past have done? Um, so yeah, those are some of the questions that draw me in. Well, let's dig into some of those. You've talked about how AI is 
killing choice and kind of a, a way of putting it. So on a baseline level, how does repeated usage of AI train us to make fewer or different everyday moral judgments? Yeah, um, essentially by replacing moral judgments or by replacing practical judgments or by replacing everyday judgments. Uh, and uh, what I mean by that is something that's not, you know, fancy uh, or, uh, you know, difficult to wrap one's heads around uh, at all. In more and more contexts uh, of our life, um, machine learning is making uh, judgment calls that used to be made by people, by, for example, middle management. So if you apply for a mortgage on many platforms, that's an algorithm making the decision of whether uh, you get it. Uh, if you um, uh, algorithms are making choices uh, about um, uh, the distribution of healthcare in some uh, context, they're making choices about uh, uh, hiring and firing in some school uh, district. They're making uh, police force allocation uh, choices and places that uh, are um, understaffed. Uh, they're making uh, sentencing recommendations uh, in the context of criminal law. Uh, you know, some of these are, um, and, they're, and they're certainly making, you know, viewing recommendations on Netflix and what you should read next or what you should listen next on Spotify and so on and so forth. And uh, the basic point is like making a judgment, like should somebody get a promotion? Should uh, somebody get a, a mortgage? Used to be something that a human being decided by weighing all kinds of particulars, using their spidey sense, whatever. Um, and uh, increasingly, they're made by machines. And if using your judgment is a little bit like going to the gym, it's like a muscle of whether you use it uh, or lose it, um, then more and more we're uh, in more and more context uh, not using it. So it seems like one of the things you're getting at here is that an advancement in AI is something beyond, uh, for instance, just kind of driving or routing directions because it's not just making logistical recommendations. It's also making uh, decisions that are kind of freighted with moral weight. Is that kind of a fair way to talk about it? Yeah, increasingly so. And the technology in a variety of uh, narrow contexts is getting better and better at that. So probably we will get to a uh, state of affairs where AI is going to be better uh, economically and even more fair morally than a human being can be in making a mortgage decision or making a personal loan decision or even making a uh, hiring recommendation. I don't think that's impossible at all. I think there's just a real loss in humans not exercising their judgment capacity. And I'm skeptical about... Um, whether this is going to necessarily free them up to exercise it somewhere else. And so one of the things that this has kind of been been tickling the back of my brain about is to what extent the machines or the algorithms or AI um, are just extensions really about sort of the people who program them. We've talked about entrenched bias in the past, obviously, where if there's, for instance, some sort of um, racial profiling going on and you design a hiring algorithm, it might inadvertently take into account kind of those biases and encode them. So where are you thinking about the separation of the programmer versus the program? Uh, that's a great question. It's not just the uh, programmer. There's certainly the bias in writing um, an algorithm. So, for example, uh, if you uh, use zip codes as uh, proxies for the uh, uh, potential to repay a loan, then that's a bias uh, uh, potentially from the person who uh, uh, writes the algorithm, but also from uh, the kind of data that the algorithms are fed in the first place. Um, so, famously, for example, some of the 
early facial recognition technologies or not so early, some of the facial recognition technologies from recent years were better at recognizing the faces of uh, white men um, uh, than any other uh, demographic. And the reason was that most of their trading data uh, was that. Um, uh, so both in training data and in the writing uh, of the algorithms in the first place, they reflect biases. Uh, but importantly, uh, if there's enough political will and commercial pressure in both, then those biases can be fixed, just like, you know, Microsoft fixed its uh, facial recognition um, software in response to uh, pressure. Um, so in some way, I think, you know, the bias question, the extension of bias question, it's like a big question, it's important. Um, but it can be addressed. Uh, what I think can't be addressed or is much harder to address uh, has to do with the loss of uh, capacity from this replacing us and some basic functions. Well, getting to that actually is the question of replacement. Uh, discussions in the labor market have often centered around sort of an industrial model of replacing human labor. You know, it can lift an object that a person can't, it can do something more efficiently. Um, how is AI sort of an advancement on uh, existing sort of technological industrial replacement efforts? And what is kind of new about it? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, for now, what seems to be happening is rather than jobs being replaced wholesale by jobs, parts of jobs are being replaced. So people's job definitions uh, are changing. I think there's no way around um, that meaning that sooner or later you'll need fewer people to generate the same uh, kind of productivity. Um, it's certainly becoming pretty good at uh, replacing the more uh, repetitive parts of um, white collar work. Uh, for example, document review uh, in law firms uh, and um, you know, even famously uh, uh, some uh, uh, identification of uh, uh, pathologies and medical images, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, tasks that can be sort of be made more efficient by recognizing large patterns better than we can. So those parts of existing jobs are already changing. Uh, if um, the chatbots fulfill some of the promise that they look like they're fulfilling, certainly the case that entire jobs uh, can be uh, replaced uh, from graphic design to content writing for marketing, copy, et cetera, et cetera. That gets into kind of one of the thorniest, mushiest applications of AI, at least while I've been looking at it, which is kind of how it interacts with the creative field, the uh, things that we tend to attribute as the natural outgrowth of the human soul, so to speak. So when you're thinking about subbing in AI-generated writing, for instance, there are plenty of journalistic outlets like Market Watch that might use some sort of kind of generated article reporting, pulling stock data, again, exactly kind of the sort of data combing that you've been talking about. But then you transition into the visual arts or into more kind of creative writing territories. So how is AI butting up against what we think about in terms of authorship and kind of creative expression? Yeah, um, it really is. Uh, and it's uh, um, the wild, wild west uh, around those questions right now. So just, I think, 
over the weekend, a combination of uh, AI techniques was uh, made to create a uh, Drake and the Weekend uh, uh, song that went uh, absolutely uh, viral. Um, that was probably, I'm assuming, a combination of text generation with a bunch of uh, deep fake voice usage and um, apparently somebody who um, uh, actually wrote music that uh, uh, it was attached to. Uh, but the direction where this is going is that, you know, for example, in music, if you, uh, you know, like the Smiths and you would uh, want them to uh, hear, uh, you, you would want them to have a reunion or to sing a version of uh, uh, Boys Don't Cry from The Cure, uh, you could probably do that in the very near uh, future. Um, and there's enough Smiths and Cure fans, et cetera, and you can apply this to any uh, artists uh, uh, that I'm sure there would be interest uh, in doing that. So um, is that valuable as an artistic creation? Does it count as an artistic creation? I think, you know, those are good, those are good questions. Or you, you take the same issue to uh, uh, literature and you want, you know, you, you, you can't wait enough for the uh, next, you can't wait patiently for the next Dennis Lehane uh, uh, thriller. And you say, write me a thriller uh, about, you know, um, resource mining uh, in the voice of Dennis Lehane. It's not quite there, but it's very close to being there. Um, especially if you look at the pace of progress. Are those, are those products worth anything artistically? Um, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'd love to separate out kind of two notes that you touched on there. One of them is sort of the sentience issue, the, the humanity issue, the ability to kind of impersonate or, you know, mimic what would appear to us to be, you know, human action. Um, so looking at the art products that are coming out, one of the questions that's come up a lot with the chatbot specifically is uh, the quality of the work that they're producing, where, you know, you might be getting something that's the equivalent of kind of a decent high schooler's level of writing. Um, but what are you thinking about in terms of the capacity to advance to such a point that it's able to essentially mimic on a one-to-one -one level, the quality of kind of these revered artists? I think it's just a question of time and not a lot of time. Uh, if you look at the progress between ChatGPT three and a half and four, I think you have your answer. Um, so I think that is not going to be a question for very long. It also depends on, you know, uh, people are gonna come up with specific ways of so, for example, the Drake Weekend stuff was indistinguishable from their voices. The reason why it was indistinguishable from their voices, if not from uh, their music, was uh, the fact that there was a lot of voice to train it on. Similarly, you're going to be able to write a great essay or a great novel, or the program is going to be able to write a great essay or a great novel if it is trained specifically enough on sufficient number of great essays and great novels, rather than just the whole internet, which is you know, usually not great. Um, but I think, you know, it raises this kind of question of um, what makes you, uh, my colleague Alex Stubbs and I uh, uh, wrote about this, you know, what makes you appreciate a great performance? What makes you appreciate a great work of art? Um, is it just the final product or is it the fact that, you know, there's kind of talent that you can't completely account for or explain that goes into it and it's the sort of wow factor 
there's the philosopher Michael um, Sandel uh, writes about this in the context of gener genetic engineering. And he says, you know, the problem with genetic engineering uh, is that it messes with our idea of giftedness, that we admire, um, we admire great performances because they represent the kind of giftedness that awes us. And in the case of technologically generated performance, our uh, admiration moved moves from the giftedness to uh, an engineer or to uh, a, a pharmacist or to a, a lab person. Uh, and it's not clear that um, art can still do for you um, what it does under those conditions. And then, of course, that also implicates the ongoing discussion around impersonation. Uh, how is AI interacting with, say, deep fakes? Because it seems like those are also getting better and better and more and more accurate over time. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think um, it's going to raise real questions about uh, how people can trust what they see. I think it's also going to create, in the end, it's going to create a kind of cynicism that will make people jaded and not necessarily want to consume uh, uh, content. You know, it's interesting. Um, you might sort of want to do a thought experiment of uh, comparing uh, the age of uh, Spotify, where you can listen to all of the world's music uh, uh, at the uh, tip of your fingers in the car to uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, seven years ago, when you uh, were driving around with your folders of uh, uh, CDs and didn't have, you know, as much uh, choice. Um, when When is one listening to more music? When is one more into the music? Is there a point at which the glut of um, possibilities kind of overwhelms you. Um, you know, how excited are you sort of going to be to buy the next album from your favorite artist when you no longer can tell anything about the process of its production? So one thing that, that is striking me as well is um, there are kind of upsides to this as well, kind of how advanced and how quickly uh, advanced it's becoming. What are some of the ways that, you know, advanced machine learning, either on the creative side or by its ability to kind of drag large amounts of archival data, maybe, uh, are offering some sort of opportunity that we can kind of work with? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, if I'm forced to be optimistic about this stuff, just for a second. Yeah, which which I'm genuinely not. Um, I think it can be, to be serious for a minute, I think it can be used as a sort of creativity prompt, give me some ideas for writing um, stories about X, Y, uh, and Z, uh, make me a personal, make me an, an initial rough draft so I can sort of uh, overcome uh, a moment of writer's block or blank page anxiety kind of uh, uh, episode. Um, you know, maybe it's a brand new stage uh, in the history of sampling, which was so uh, crucial for the development of hip hop. Uh, I don't know, you know, sampling uh, is amazing, but part of why it's amazing is that it required actual human effort to do the sampling, to choose what is sampled. Um, this is just a little too easy. Uh, and I'm not even sure that it counts as sampling uh, anymore, but I think it can be used uh, as a um, source for generating ideas. Some artists, by the way, 
uh, have uh, completely invited this and said, sure, uh, sample my, uh, use my AI generated voice um, and, uh, you know, uh, go crazy with it. See, see, see what you can do, whether it's because they're genuinely artistically excited or because they understand that there's uh, no way back from this and they're trying to figure out how to make a living uh, in a world where this happens, uh, you know, I don't know. Um, what I will say is this, uh, so say somebody, you know, uh, really uh, talented, uh, you know, choose your artist sort of uh, comes on the, uh, comes on the stage uh, and uh, puts out, you know, a series of songs. Uh, at a certain moment, if uh, they put out enough songs, uh, their artistic legacy can be carried out without them, uh, and they become obsolete. If, once there's enough data to uh, generate uh, uh, deepfake uh, Taylor Swift, um, it's not clear that you really need Taylor Swift anymore. Um, and, um, you know, that's too bad. It seems like there is a bit of a thread here as well, where we talked earlier about um, the moral decision making uh, that you might not be making if AI is is kind of filling those gaps. So it seems like you're talking about also a creative decision making that would kind of atrophy. A creative decision making, uh, absolutely. But also, you know, I talked to a student of mine who's a musician uh, about this in a in a seminar. And what he said is like, this is the only thing I'm good at, and this is the only thing I like doing, and why would I want to keep doing it um, if um, it's not a function of um, human talent and creativity uh, anymore? Now, you know, in fairness, these kind of anxieties are always raised about new technologies, but it's also the case, and we forget in the kind of optimistic hype uh, uh, Silicon Valley inflected world that we live in that uh, some new technologies have a real cost. So for example, after iTunes uh, uh, sort of took apart albums for parts uh, so that uh, the uh, unit of consumption became songs, um, people still make albums, but less. Uh, and albums have become only one form of creative expression. And some artists think that there's a lot more to be said for an album than for just releasing uh, singles. Um, and so iTunes, you know, profoundly changed that form of creative expression and it's not gonna go back. And that's even true about earlier technologies, like writing in some important ways killed oral culture, it killed, you know, storytelling. Yes, sure, there's some, you know, storytellers, uh, but uh, it's not ubiquitous. And so there is such a thing as uh, sort of technological, uh, technologically induced cultural loss. So picking up on several of the threads that we've talked about so far, is there um, an implication for kind of government trust, government projects, uh, you know, deepfakes seem like an obvious uh, issue in terms of kind of how do you trust communications from public officials? How can they trust that they're getting uh, communications from actual constituents? Uh, where are you seeing this interact with the policy space potentially? Um, yeah, I think I think that's wide open and uh, needs to figure out, needs to be figured out. Government has to come up with uh a way to um, 
generate trust with constituents, uh, especially as they're worried that the people contacting them uh, are not people uh, and not contacting them. Um, and I think, you know, it's a version of a question that exists in a bunch of uh, uh, spaces, like, how do I know that my students' essays weren't generated by uh, chat GPT? Uh, and, you know, people in universities are scrambling to figure that out. Part of the way that they're going to figure that out probably in universities is go back to old-fashioned kind of ways of evaluation, like uh, either handwriting or uh, even more, um, you know, personal interviews to see face-to-face -to -face talking with a student, see if they know the material. That's going to require a lot more time, a lot more resources. Something like that might be have to happen in a policy context uh, uh, as well. So we might actually uh, find ourselves going back to um, some more old-fashioned ways of communicating as a way of um, uh, circumventing some of these technological risks. So th that does make me wonder, you know, what holes are there in kind of I'd say not just structures of law, because obviously AI Im implicates a lot of copyright questions, it implicates kind of, you know, personal image rights, that sort of thing. But what would you like to see as we start to really kind of get our hands around how AI can change public and civic life, uh, officials or institutions to start doing to address kind of the, the exponential growth of this technology? Yeah, um, you know, I think people are increasingly starting to think about that. There's a sort of uh, regulatory, uh, the regulatory approach uh, in the European Union and here, for example, are quite different. It's much more on the uh, libertarian light hand here, uh, traditionally, uh, and even for AI uh, than it is in Europe. Um, there's not a ton of um, interest in serious uh, uh, regulation here. Um, and I think, you know, that's an obvious, uh, area where we have to be paying a lot more attention. So for example, there's this famous letter a few weeks ago where, uh, some, uh, tech luminaries have called for, uh, um, freezing, uh, chat GPT at the level of chat GPT four. So it can't do any more, uh, damage in terms of misinformation, hacking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it wasn't very specific. Um, so freezing it for what? Um, you know, some some people have suggested, uh, uh, I think Ezra Klein suggested, well, maybe you should freeze it so that you can uh, freeze it until you can totally reverse engineer how it generates its answers or freeze it until you can figure out what it would take for an AI not to um, uh, undermine some of our basic values as it tries to blindly pursue uh, uh, its own purposes, namely how do you make sure it doesn't start a war as part of driving the stock price of something uh, um, up? Um, so I think we uh, are either going to have to sort of abandon some of our traditional, very libertarian uh, approach to uh, 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 the regulation of new technologies, or we're going to be in big trouble. That is all the time we have for this episode of the podcast. Professor Esokovitz, thank you for being with us today. And to our listeners, we'll be back in your ears next week.